Well, so many Sundays I have to wait on y'all. I figured I'd let you wait on me. It was about six years ago that Mike Lonas sent me a text message and said, you might want to listen to this. And uh, I, I did, and I obviously liked it, and have been listening ever since, ever since. And became acquainted, acquainted with the American Policy Roundtable and the Public Square Media Network or the broadcast. And <clears throat> have listened to, I've listened to every broadcast for the last six years. And... Uh, the American Policy Roundtable has been, you know, has influenced a lot of us. As a matter of fact, all of the graduates who received this year, who received uh, the, the book, Jesus, His Story, that comes from the American Policy Roundtable. They had a, they reprinted a book. Some of you may recall, uh, that almost a year ago, matter of fact, I think it's exactly a year ago, I did two messages entitled, uh, Navigating this dual citizenship. And I'm just going to give you one quote, which is not even me, but one quote from that message by John Frame of the Westminster, from the Westminster Theological Journal. And he said, in the modern world, each Christian is a citizen of two nations, an earthly nation like the United States and the heavenly nation that's not of this world. Though we belong entirely to Christ, We do not on that account renounce our citizenship in the earthly nations any more than we leave our earthly families. Indeed, we seek to be good citizens for those earthly nations themselves and their rulers received their authority from God. And we dealt in those messages of the fact that we are part of, we're citizens of heaven and as kingdom citizens, uh, we are where Jeremiah 29 uh, has us to pray for the peace of the city in which you live. And what Dave Zanotti and the team at Public Square and American Policy Roundtable do is they, they give us the help, the resources to help us be those good kingdom citizens while we're still here. And to help us, to educate us on how we approach that citizenship. Through the lens of kingdom citizens, kingdom biblical view, worldview. Uh, Dave Zanotti and the American Policy Roundtable have been doing this for over 40 years. I know that uh, Dave has attended at least four higher education institutions. Is that, is that right? Two of which are Bible, are Bible colleges, one of which is a seminary. And he brings not only uh, that education to the table, but he, he brings a love for God and a love for God's people. And so I just want you to hear uh, Dave Zanotti as he comes and shares with us this morning. Let's welcome the man of God. Thank you for the privilege of joining with you on this Sunday morning. I'll be looking forward to more online exchanges with you, so you might never know when I'm checking in and watching. Um, I have found that I 
do a better job when I'm seated. I hope you'll take no offense in that. Uh, maybe the older I've gotten, I think what it is is it's my Italian nature. I have to have something in my hands so that the video doesn't go wild. And if I sit down, I don't walk all over the front of the church, which drives the video people even crazier. So it's kind of centering uh, the, the, for, for the online audience. Um, I came here today uh, not to preach to you. I, I didn't really even come here today to teach. I really came here to uh, compare notes. And so far, um, I'm not at all surprised because knowing Larry and Ann, knowing the groups of people that they have associated with over the years, knowing the um, intensity of the pursuit of Christ in the community of pastoral influence from which they function, I expected you all to be very delightful and sober-minded people of faith. And not the least bit disappointed. Now, I want to just... Under that spirit, compare some notes with you all. First off, <laughs> um, I don't know. I started, my first film project was in the eighth grade. In the eighth grade, a buddy of mine convinced his dad to drive through one of the worst blighted, riot-driven slums in the Huff neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio, with a small handheld home camera and we created a film project in the eighth grade for a civics class. And given the intensity of the technology, we were able to match it up with a record player and, 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 and compose the film so that it matched the record. This was very sophisticated when I was in the eighth grade. We had just discovered electricity. So I've been at the idea of storytelling through media for a long, long time. Now, I've had the extraordinary privilege we've had of working in Middle Tennessee since 2007, which is not very long compared to how long many of you have been here. <laughs> but it's long enough to tell you that having been all over the place, on the road, in the buses, um, in the in the events, in the productions, and so on and so forth. You just know in about five minutes when you're hanging around people that know what they're doing. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you all just take it for granted. But I kind of know good sound when I hear it. Um, I also know good sound setups when I see them. And I'm, I don't know what... I'm just comparing notes, okay? Take it or leave it. It may be for you. It may be for somebody online. But come on, folks. I mean, do you have any idea how much money I have to pay to produce this sort of stuff year after year after year? And you just walk in on Sunday morning and the sound is, oh, perfect. <laughs> it's an art form. Thank you, Gary and it's so good. <laughs> It is so good. And then, of course, you, you know, you, you have people who, I don't know, they can, 
they can sort of sing. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's kind of nice also. But then, come on, who's your bass player? Where are you? Where are you? Come on. I'm watching you. I'm watching you. I'm watching the I'm sorry. I can't just not. This is what I do. And it is so beautiful to see how tight this is, but how true it is. Now, I want to compare notes with you. Um, some of those were original songs up there that we were singing. Most of them are covers. Okay. Who does the picking? Okay. Because inside the context of those words, yeah, yeah, we've, we've done some stuff together. We didn't know we were doing it together, but that Fanny Crosby project, um, we have many hours invested in before we even met each other. It's the first time we've met today, I think. So that Lipscomb project goes back quite a few years now. And yes, I have the Fanny Crosby works that hidden, uh, yeah, I, I've got all those. You probably do too now. We've got the binder of those 2000 unpublished works of Fanny Crosby that are still being developed in several projects right here in town. Yeah, there's that too. I know good theology in lyrics when I get it. And what you all are singing today is really good theology. It's not trendy. It's not entertaining. It's, it's not, um, just cause it rhymes, it works. No, there's some really good theology in what you sang today. I'm just, I'm just comparing notes. But you're doing, doing that really well. You're doing that really well. So, my question is, why don't you have 5,000 people hanging from all over the place and sold this building three times over and all that sort of stuff? Well, because there's a difference between being kind of church folk and taking Jesus seriously. And if you notice, there were lots and lots and lots of crowds following Jesus. But he spent most of his time with 12 and even more specifically with three. So God comes to earth, spends most of his time working with three people who nobody knew. And nine others, one of whom betrayed him. If you look at the trend of the life of Jesus, most of the time you'll find he's walking away from the crowds. That's why they're following him. I hope that you are a student of Jesus. I've come to the conclusion after being a Christian since God rescued me when I was 16 years old. And I ended up starting in public ministry at the age of 17. Now that's a pretty interesting story because I was a Roman Catholic kid Latin mass altar boy whose family all came from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania where we were transplanted to Cleveland, Ohio which meant that we were at war with all of our relatives every football season. And everybody in my family came here from a boat. All my grandparents came here from Italy. So I was the first person in that chain of two families that wandered into the fullness of being born again. 
They didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know either. I had never been in a Protestant church. I didn't know people like you existed. And the first time I walked in, I didn't know if I was going to get struck by lightning or I was going to get baptized or what was going to happen because I'd never been in one of those places before. My family was so Catholic and so Italian and so Latin mass that in the town that they came from, Polish Catholics didn't date Italian Catholics. They had separate churches. Can I get a witness? Is there anybody here from that alien world of emigration? Uh, yeah. See, I'm not even a Yankee. I'm barely an American. In fact, when I grew up as a kid, we were told we were only half white. And if you've ever seen the movie Green Book, I'm telling you, that's true. <laughs> so the idea that we'd be here today in and of itself tells you God has not lost his sense of humor yet. But since Jesus came and rescued me, I've had a tough decision to make. And that is whether or not every day I would believe he is real. Now you say, well, wait a minute. You just said he rescued you. Yes, he did graciously kept working to fill me with his Holy Spirit. But in this life in which we live, there is a constant attack against the person of Jesus. There's a constant counterculture to tell you that he is not real. Or, he's not really here. Or, he didn't really care that much. Now, I didn't know how to be a Christian. I, I didn't know how to be a Protestant Christian, that's for sure. So I just did what the people who introduced me to Jesus told me to do. And I just started to follow the steps. They said, well, you need to give your testimony. I said, I, I don't know what that is. Am I going to jail or something? Do I have to go to court? And they said, no, just tell what happened to you. So that was kind of easy because I told people what happened to me. And then they said, well, we want you to tell that story over here and then tell that story over here. So, okay, so now what do we do? And then next thing you know, I was captured by the music of the faith. It was the music of the faith that got deeply into my spirit because, again, I was a Latin mass Catholic altar boy and it was kind of hard to sing along. <laughs> now, I was busy ringing the bells, but that's it was it as far as it went. The music of the faith captured me. So I was on the road with people that were doing musical storytelling. Now I'm 15, 16, 17 years of age. I, I didn't know, excuse me, I'm 17 years of age. I, I didn't know a whole lot about how to do this. So I started listening to preachers because I had never heard them before. So I started listening to Billy Graham. And back then my voice was a little more flexible than it is today. So I could do a great Billy Graham impersonation. In fact, I used to stand in the back of the bus, back of the tour bus, and I would do the Billy Graham thing every night. Crack up everybody before they went to bed at night. And so I would travel different places and I would pick up on great preaching and I would, I would, I would basically just learn the, the, these wonderful sermons. Now, I didn't know anything about being Protestant. You understand what we're talking about here? So I'm traveling with a bunch of born again Catholics who are filled with the Holy Ghost, 
who then started an evangelical, uh, charismatic sort of congregation. And we're trying to figure all this stuff out. Now, we cook great on Sundays, I got to tell you. You'd eat it. You'd love it. But there was a lot of figuring out to do. So I went, we, we started to travel the south. Now, for us, the south was Kentucky. Because <laughs> our parents had told us, don't you dare go past the Mason-Dixon line because they don't like people like us down there. I, I, I'm telling you the honest truth. So we thought once you got south of Columbus, Ohio, you were probably in the deep south. So we got the whole way to Kentucky, and I heard this little short Pentecostal preacher give a message on Gideon. Now, this guy was good, and he was strong, and he was a, a, a walking preacher. Right, he just walked back and forth and said, little guy. So he had loud heels, and you could hear him walking across the platform. And he preached the stars down on this magnificent story of Gideon. Well, I, I was so captivated, I took careful notes, and I learned that sermon point by point by point. And I thought, well, let's, you know, let's try it a little bit. So I was trying it out in the back of the bus. So wouldn't you know, it wasn't very long past that, we got into a church camp situation. We were supposed to be there for three days at a, at a, at a church camp in Pennsylvania. Friday night came. I figured, let's roll it out. So I rolled out the sermon on Gideon. I used every antic that guy used. I used every intonation, every inflection. And I want to tell you what, 54 kids came to Christ that night on that sermon of Gideon. It was amazing. And by midnight, the Presbyterian elders of the camp had ushered me off the property. So I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know what the rules were. I, I got better. <laughs> so, so then they said, well, when we ran out of material, they said, you probably ought to think about going to Bible college. And I thought, okay, what's that? They said, well, just, just start looking for them. Well, a couple of weeks later, a Bible college group came into our Sunday evening service at the church in Youngstown, Ohio. I'm very proud to say that I was sired in the faith in Youngstown, Ohio. Those are my people. And if you've never been to Youngstown, Ohio, you just don't know. But if you go there, just make sure you go to an Italian restaurant. That's all that matters. Because you can't go wrong. These were, were my folks and my friends. Uh, my, I was kind of interesting because my parents were still confused about me living in Cleveland. My other relatives were in Pittsburgh. So I sat right in the middle. And God put me right in a place where at the age of 17, I left high school, went to travel full time with this group of, of, of gospel evangelists working with young people. And then during the week, we held full time jobs. Half the guys working in a body shop and the rest of us were truck drivers and dock wallopers in Youngstown. That was our life. And they said, well, you got time for you to go to Bible college. Okay. What's that? Well, one Sunday night, a Bible college rolls into church. They've, you know what they bring? They bring three really pretty girls who can sing. And they start doing this fantastic musical presentation. And then up pops the dean of students and makes a presentation about serving Jesus full time. Now, I don't exactly know what happened from the time the lovely girls who sang such beautiful songs about Jesus from the time that, that they stopped singing and how I got to the front but that week, I was on my way to Bible college. 
Didn't know a thing about the place. All I knew is they came. They told me about Jesus. They said this was the place. The pastor and the elders said, we know these folks. They're good folks. So there I was. I enrolled in Bible college. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm the test case for modern evangelicalism in the 70s and the 80s. Because you got to admit, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have any biases. I just went. And there the journey began. And while I was at this Bible college, a professor handed out a copy of this book, Jesus, His Story. And it was for Synoptics Gospel class. I thought it was interesting. So, and this was our, our core textbook. It wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are wonderful. And of course, you need all of those for the, the Synoptic Gospel classes. To, but he said, I, I'd like you to read this. And I'd like you to make a consideration. He said, if you would like to know Jesus better, the best way I know to know him better is to read about him from the Gospels every day of your life if you want to get to know him better. Now, again, you have to remember something. I didn't have a lot of resistance because I didn't know any better. I just did what they told me. So I started in the 1970s reading about Jesus every day. Remember I said there's a constant pressure against us to stop believing in him? Well, if we get far away from him, it's harder to see him. People say to me, well, I'm just, I, I, I don't understand. I, I've been praying, I've been asking, and I can't hear his voice. I said, maybe you need to get closer. They said, well, I can't hear him. I said, maybe you should stop talking and get even closer and wait. Well, how do you get closer? You study him. Do you know, at the end of Paul's life, he boiled down his single objective. The thing that he wanted more than anything else left was to know him. To know him. Of all the massive accomplishments, the theological treatises, the books of the Bible that Paul wrote, of all of his gospel missionary outreaches and all the relationships that God established him, how this man turned the world upside down over and over and over again. That wasn't what he was counting. That wasn't where his hope was. His hope was in the knowledge, personal, intimate knowledge of the person of Jesus the Christ. Hmm. So this book went out of print, and I wore mine out because I kept reading it in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the aughts, in the 10s, and it got duct tape with silver duct tape and then white duct tape. You see, most Italian-Americans have two fundamental tools in their home, duct tape and a hammer. And and so I had used almost all my duct tape to hold my copy together. And this book went out of print. Now, the fact that this book went out of print is significant.
Because I think that as a community of faith, we've misplaced Jesus. I think we're big on the gospel. I think we're big on the issues relating to the gospel, the processes of the revelation of the scriptures. I think we're big on a lot of things that are around Christ, that are around the New Testament. We, 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 we publish countless books, 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 books about all kinds of stuff. And we elevate authors and we make them rich and we, we, we tour them around and we're like, ooh, we're fannies of this guy and that guy. Whoop, 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 whoop. So what? It's him. It's him. Founder of the Salvation Army, over a hundred years ago, made the comment when Mr. Booth was, Reverend Booth was asked, what do you fear most for the future? What concerns you the most about the future when it comes to Christianity? His response was Christless Christianity. You say to yourself, how could there be such a thing as Christless Christianity? That's absurd. Jesus is the Christ. Well, if we talk about everything but him, who's on the outside looking in? Let's not forget that in the book of Revelation, that famous passage in chapter 3 that Billy Graham used so often. Now, I'm so tempted to break into his voice, but I won't out of respect to our now, enth- our now enthroned brother who's seated with the Lord. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Jesus was knocking on the door of a local congregation proclaiming to be Christian, saying, how about letting me back in? So one of the things we had the opportunity to do because one of us cooked up, I can't remember where it came from in a meeting, and we were, I was, I, we bought, we were buying all these old copies of this book that were out there, and then finally, and we were paying two bucks, three bucks, four bucks, five bucks, six bucks, finally, I guess whoever monitors Amazon figured out what we were up to, because I think we bought every copy left in the world, and suddenly instead of paying six dollars, they were like $155, $230, $325, okay, they're on to us! And so somebody around our team said, let's just put it back into print. So that's what we did. By God's grace. We put it back exactly as it had been written by the Shanks, by Reverend Shank who wrote the text and the copy, and by his brother that did the illustrations. There's even four typos in this book. I know where they are. <laughs> I should. Um, and we reprinted it with the, even the typos. Because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And this is a pretty good work. Now, there are other great works as well. But we decided we'd take this one back because it was personal for us. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, if you come to the American Mission Center, which is where the Lord has permitted us to be building an idea farm in a place called Valley City, Ohio, that supplements our three offices, the Valley City office, the Nashville office, 
and the office in Orlando, and hopefully, by God's grace, in the next generation, we'll have six or eight or more of those offices out across the country. If you come to visit with the American Policy Roundtable or you come to the public square and you ask a very basic entry-level honest question, who are you people and what do you want? We would say, what do we want? We would hand you a pocket copy of the Constitution and the Declaration, and we would say, this is what we want. And you would say, why? And we would hand you this book and say, here's the reason why. We are unashamed to say that Jesus Christ came to set captives free. Every human is born captive, lost in the darkness of Adam's sin. And Jesus Christ alone can set us free. And once Jesus sets us free, then we have the opportunity to learn to live in the love of God, learning how to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, not in our own strength, not in our own discipline, but in the power of his spirit that transforms us so that we see people differently than we've ever seen them before. Now, in case you're wondering, that's novel. Wow, this is exciting. This is a new movement. Let's get started. If you read the first book, the Declaration and the Constitution, particularly the words of the Declaration of Independence, you will find that the people who started this country were doing exactly the thing I just described. Acknowledging the Creator, confessing the Redeemer, and trying to figure out how you build a form of civil government based upon doing unto others the way you wish they would do unto you. This is the reality of our country. Now, I spent a lifetime arguing about this because there are boatloads of academics who disagree. They bring their worldview and their presuppositions to American history and they rewrite the texts to fit their prejudices. They are scared to death of the concept that true biblical faith could inform civic understanding and the way that we deal with each other. But if you study the founders in their own words, in their own writings, and the people that they studied, you will find that they categorically understood that the only way you could have a civil government that brought you both the fullness of liberty and the justice of law was if people were changed on the inside. So they had the capacity to obey a loving God who says greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. The only way to mitigate against the fall in this world and live at some degree of peace in a fallen planet is to be reconnected with the Creator and do it in His strength and not our own. That one passage in the, in the, one of the songs that we sang today about, um, I'll praise when life is, how did it work? Uh, life is not when, when, how did that line go? Um, I praise you in the storm. 
I praise you in the storm when life, uh, and something about when, when you are good when life is not. There it is. There it is. There is the ethic of it all. God is good all the time and life not so much. Not so much. So we have a choice. It's the other thing about the theology of that I really appreciate. It. We have a choice. You can do this in your own strength. You can do it based on the narrative and the fantasy of who you think you are or who your mommy and daddy were or who you want to be or what you saw on television or what you believe about the Internet. you got all kinds of places where you can plug a narrative into your mind about what is metaphysical reality. Ontological reality, epistemological reality. Yes, I did go to seminary. <laughs> yeah, after Bible college, they said, you know, uh, you, you got to do more. So I did more, and then they did more, and I did more, and I went to school, and 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 that's it, I just never stopped going to school. But you know what I found out? Been all around the world comes back to one name given among men whereby we can and shall and must be saved. One name. One name. So, that's my story. Too old to change it now. Let's just do a little bit more note comparison and I'll be done. Um, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now it's your turn to judge me. Here's the Great Commission on a single card. Problem with the Great Commission, and I think you should judge anyone who comes into your congregation, let alone into your pulpit, based on the marching orders that we received from Jesus, because we're all supposed to be working for the same Lord, Right? And these are his marching orders. problem with the marching orders is, even when I was back in Bible college and then in theological seminary, what I discovered was that people started the Great Commission a verse too late. When you ask somebody to tell you the Great Commission, almost every Christian can say, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's a false start. Because, see, if you don't take a look at what Jesus started that sentence with, then you miss it. And that's a dangerous point to miss. For Jesus says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. Let me make something very clear to you. Christians are not in a race for a salesmanship award. We don't go hoping to convince the majority to become Christian. Therefore, we win. And God is very happy with us and gives us a wonderful tour to the Bahamas on princess cruises. We're not in the selling business. All authority. Now, we made sure that we had a look at what that word all means. So at the bottom of this little note card... To remind ourselves, the word all in Greek is just three letters. It's P-A-S in English, or pas. And it means, it's an adjective, it means each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. 
That's it. That exhausts the biblical usage of the word all. In other words, all kind of means all. Yeah. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Does that mean all of the, yeah, like you mean like the Chinese guy, that Jing Jing Ping guy that's like got the creepy hair and just had his like, did you see that in the news? He just had the, the, the former president of China dragged out of a meeting. Did you see that? Yeah, go online, check. That's really, that's like, wow. It's like James Bond creepy weird stuff. That guy, yeah. You mean, do I mean China has authority over Jesus because China doesn't believe in Jesus, therefore China cancels Jesus. <clears throat> what does all mean? Yeah. And last time I checked, the guy with the funny hair, when he dies and they put him in a tomb, he's not coming back again. At least not of his own power. Oh, but Putin doesn't buy Jesus, right? I mean... The communists, the godless equation, Stalin, Soviet Union, could we talk? They don't believe in God. You know, yeah, so this doesn't count in Russia because, you know, Putin doesn't buy in. And and so what, what does all mean? All means all. Yeah. Well, but you don't understand Silicon Valley. They have all the power. Those are the richest people in the history of the planet. And they are younger with more money than any humans have ever been in all time. And they own all the technology. They control everything. They control what you see. They control what you hear. They hold the licenses. They control the politicians. They spend more money lobbying D.C. than any other group. Silicon Valley doesn't buy into this Jesus thing. So, I don't know. Do I change this? Because maybe those people out there don't get it. All sort of authority, except for the Internet. I don't know. Now let's pick your favorite governor. No, not that one, another one. What if he doesn't buy him? What if that guy from the big state out there who's deciding that, you know, you're not going to be able to drive a gasoline-powered car anymore in his state? Hmm. I wonder what Jesus thinks about that. Is that a relevant thing to ask? Only if all means all. What's my point? I don't care whether we're talking about city council determining what day the garbage gets picked up in my neighborhood or whether or not you're going to be able to drive this kind of car or that kind of car or whatever the United States Supreme Court says or whatever Xi Jinping and Putin and Biden and all these people put together in the same room at the same time think. They are under the authority of the only one who has ever risen from the dead, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, they don't have to live that way. And they can choose to go exactly the opposite direction for as long as the Lord gives them life and breath. But someday, every person who has ever lived and breathed on this earth will stand before the only one who has ever risen from the dead and answer to his authority. Take it or leave it. I didn't write it. It's not my words. He is my boss. Here's something he says. Let's turn to Luke chapter 15. We doing okay time-wise here, Pastor? All right. 
How long do you all go to church here usually? Is he done? Yeah. Is Larry's done? Okay. All right. All right. Let's go to Luke 15. One little thought I had that maybe God wanted me to share with you today is something that came to me in devotions this week that really messed me up, and it was a beautiful mess. I'm reading in Proverbs, and uh, I came across that old passage, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. And something just kind of twitched me on this side of the brain and said, that's almost like a seed passage for the parable of the prodigal son. Because contained in that proverb from King Solomon all those years ago is the anticipation that there is an arc or an orbit to human life. And sometimes people get out of orbit. They go on the dark side of the moon. But there's a sense that God already knows that arc. He knows how far some of us will journey before we finally find home. And I was thinking about that. You know, well, let's look at the prodigal son. There's two two parables that, that people talk most about in Jesus' life, the good Samaritan and the prodigal son. Interestingly enough, the prodigal son only appears in one of the Gospels. It's in the book of Luke. And Jesus starts it out so simply. He just says, there was a man who had two sons. There you go. Now, one son was pretty corporate and compliant. He's doing a good thing. I think, yeah, he's the older brother, right? Yeah, figures. Yeah, I'm not a firstborn. Sorry if you are. It's, you know, it's, so, doesn't mean you're firstborn, you got to be the bad guy in this story. But those of us that are not firstborns kind of relate to this story. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. Um, so the firstborn's doing the right thing, and it's all fine. The secondborn decides one day, says, you know what, Pop, you got a lot of dough. And, um, you know, the Old Testament teaches it's better to give the inheritance early than late. So I'm going to capitalize on a little theology here, play my old man for a song. Give me everything you got because I got plans and I want to go. And the dad does it. The dad gives him the money and says, peace, go, do your thing. I love you. Go fulfill your dreams. The kid goes out and for a while, yeehaw. He's having a grand old time. Everybody's his friend because he's picking up the tab. It's going great. He's living in a hot place. It's all good. He's good. He's young. He's got dough. But things get tough in town and the money runs out and he's got no job. And he finds out without the money, he's got no friends. So the next thing you know, he's slopping the stuff, feeding the hogs. And, the, and, and a famine hits. It's bad. Times get really bad. And this kid is starving. And he was thinking, I, man, I just soon eat what I'm giving these pigs because I'm dying here. And he comes, the scripture says, to the end of himself. There's a whole passage right there. There's a whole sermon, a whole book right there. He comes to the end of himself. Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, God has every human surrounded by reality. It's just some of us are better deniers than others. I added that second part. The kid finally has to deal with reality, and he genuinely repents. He says, you know what? I'm a jerk. My dad's servants live better than me. I did this to myself. I'm going home, and I'm going to tell my father I really messed up. I am sorry. I was a fool. I've squandered my inheritance and your money. Please, just give me the lowest job you got, and I'll be thankful. Now, let's get this verse together. 
It's in verse 20. I think I got that right. There we go. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. While he was still a long way off. You know, you all are good Christian folk here. Thank you for praying for America. Thank you for having people that understand how America works. Thank you for what you do. If you don't, I could spend hours comparing more notes with you, showing how little things that you and your, your, your musical team and your pastoral team, things they have done over the years that I've caught wind of and how they've influenced people all over the world. I could, I could just as an outsider come in and give you a boatload of testimonies of how you are impacting people's lives around the world. You're for real. And I respect that. But my guess is some of you, like me, begin to wonder, can this country be any more messed up than it is right now? And how can an honest, holy, just God put up with this one moment longer? Now, let me be clear here. I'm not talking about a political party. This is no code. Those of you watching online, my greetings to the IRS, to the Justice Department, and everyone else. God loves you, and so do I. This is not going to be political in the sense of parties. It's going to be political in the sense of all authority, including the authority over every political decision that happens belongs to Christ. The difference is we forget that he gives us the choice to execute his mercy and grace as his partners in the faith, as a part of his household. Biggest problem we have in America is that the church has forsaken the Great Commission. We are happy to send money all over the world so that other people can hear the gospel. But we live as if the gospel is irrelevant in our daily lives. Many of us are starving to death without the word of God and are functioning as pagans with a little Jesus added on Sunday. Me too. But then there's the political structures, because we, the Christians, have pulled out of that system. Then people who don't have a biblical worldview and are not committed to the Great Commission and do not believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and are not broken and surrendered and reassembled by him, that they can execute mercy and justice and kindness on earth, they take over and they act like the pagans that they are. And we go, like we're suddenly the fans that don't like the team on the field anymore. But we left the field. Now we buy tickets and we watch. And we give tickets to the red guys or tickets to the blue. give our ticket money to the red guys or the blue guys and they blow it on the field and all we do is go home and say, oh, I never would have called that play. Well, here's an idea. Why don't you get your tail end off the seat and onto the field? Because all we do is criticize instead of compete. Mm. And say we gave it the office. Look, I know the presupposition is if you're a white Christian, you're a Republican. If you're a black Christian, you're a Democrat. I'm neither. Call me a Martian. I'd just soon be a Christian who happens to be a constitutionalist 
who wants to know what Christ wants me to do in regards to public service and loving my neighbor. And you can take all the rest of that stuff? Well, I'm in church. I can't tell you the rest. You read George Washington, that's how he approached this. That's why they got so far in the beginning. You know, we elected three presidents of the United States before we had a single political party in this state, in this country. And I know that goes down hard, particularly in Tennessee. I'm surprised they haven't strung me up yet. I've been here since 07 saying this every single day. And if you're, if you're, if you're deep into the Republican party, you know, look, it's okay. God hates political parties. You should know that. Because he hates anything that sows discord among brethren. But if God sent you into the Republican Party to show them what Jesus looks like, then God bless you. Keep going. See, you can be a missionary there too. That's fine. But don't think for one second that a political party is going to solve America. It's only godly people doing everything that they can to put principle over party that will save our country. If you're called into the party, God bless you. You're a missionary there, just like I'm a missionary. I respect that. But let's not be confused here. The answer is not a party. Because parties in and of themselves cannot save us. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, the answer isn't in a candidate. Especially one for the presidency. Sorry, one more seminar, we got to end. <laughs> Earlier, your elder, darn hard, I forgot the guy's name. See, Rob, Rob. Earlier, Rob was talking to you about the different divisions of government. Yeah, the real the, the reason that the founders put in the different separations of powers, the division of power in our country and checks and balances, because they believed in the biblical worldview that human beings were fallen. And if you didn't set up structures of checks and balances and separated a separation of powers and divided government, then people would accumulate power and bully everybody else down. Because they'd study like 4,000 years of human history before them and saw that was always what happened. And so from a biblical worldview comes this entire concept of the separation powers and checks and balances. But today you've got people who don't hold a biblical worldview, don't know why those separation of powers are there, so they just issue orders and say, see you in court. And I don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican, executive orders are not what the president's supposed to use to try to dominate public policy. Donald Trump was just as wrong as Joe Biden and Barack Obama. This is stupid. You can't do this. Furthermore, you can't trust on the courts to define what the law is. That's not what the Constitution says. We establish the law. They apply to make sure that it's being applied fairly and settle disputes. Why? Because nine unelected robe judges are, are just as dangerous as one totalitarian, totalitarian president or one totalitarian speaker of the house. Or one filibustered, addicted Senate leadership, no matter what party they're in. Uh-oh. Now we're in trouble, because you see, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them what? To observe everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. In Greek, lo, I am with you all the days to the very end of days. Now we get to a point where we think that America can never, ever, 
ever come back. That we can never find our way home. Right now, America is going through an adolescent temper tantrum that rivals the prodigal son. But I want to tell you something. God has not lost sight of us. We are surrounded by the same reality that the prodigal was surrounded by. And God sees from afar. There is still hope that we may yet turn toward home. I think we forget how much he loves. For God so loved the world, yes, our world, this world, this world, today. And he never forsakes that which he loves. Lo, I am with you all the days to the very end of days, which means this day where we stand now. And he does not forsake that which he loves. So if you are afraid God has given up on America, that he's lost his sense of grace or patience or even a sense of humor, just remember we were together today. He sees from afar and he ran to him and had compassion upon him. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm sorry that I don't know you better yet. Please forgive me for thinking more highly of myself than I ought. I would very much like to know you better and serve you more even though I know now that from studying you, serving you means giving up my life. Not necessarily succeeding the way that the world tells us. God, please forgive me because far too often I've wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it too. I've wanted to be just as Christian as I needed to be, but then get everything else as well. Forgive me for the times I've not made the sacrifice of faith and served. Lord, our country's messed up like you mean me to tell you that. Many of us feel very far away from you and feel that you are very far away from us. Lord, I pray you will use these words to awaken us in the midst of a hog pen to the notion that you still love this world. You still love us. You still love the idea of liberty and justice because you came to set the captives free. And you, O oh God, are not only just, you are the judge. We humbly repent, God, and ask you to forgive us for not knowing you better and serving you well. And pray that if it be in your kindness and your compassion that you would give us one more chance, any job, any place, 
that we could be close to you and to your heart and to your will. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave us this parable to remind us that there is no one who can be too far away, that you can't find them and bring them home. Thank you for this day, O God, your day. May we never pray in the name of Jesus in vain, for it is his name that we beseech you. Amen. Pastor.